hppodcraft.com. The Lord Ralabar Vuz, High Magistrate of Camorium and third cousin to King Homquat, had gone forth with six and twenty of his most valorous retainers in quest of such game as was afforded by the Black Iglothian Mountains, leaving to lesser sportsmen the great sloths and vampire bats of the intermediate jungle, as well as the small but noxious dinosauria. Ralabar Vuz and his followers had pushed rapidly ahead and had covered the distance between the Hyperborean capital and their objective in a day's march. The glassy scars and grim ramparts of Mount Vumitadrif, highest and most formidable of the Iglophians, had beetled above them, wedging the sun with dark scoriac peaks at mid-afternoon and walling the blazonries of sunset wholly from view. They had spent the night beneath its lowermost crags, keeping a ceaseless watch, piling dead branches on their fires and hearing on the grisly heights above them the wild and dog-like ululations of those subhuman savages, the Vurmis, for which the mountain was named. Also they heard the bellowing of an alpine catoblopus pursued by the Vurmis, and the mad snarling of a saber-toothed tiger assailed and dragged down and Ralabar Vuz had deemed that these noises boded well for the morrow's hunting. I've got to say it's good to step off the moors and into the craggy base of Mount Vormithadreth. <laughs> Vormithadreth? King Homquat, the Iglophian Mountains? It's all this uh, Hyperborean stuff. Well, I definitely wanted to break away after Wuthering Heights from that level of seriousness and get back into some weird monstery fiction, but I didn't know it was going to be quite this written by Dr. Seuss. Well, it's not Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Clark Ashton Smith, and this story is called The Seven Geishas. Geish, it's a sort of vow or spell from Irish mythology. So we're going to get seven of these geishas in the story. So that's the title, The Seven Geishas. Unfortunately, there are not seven Edgar Allan Poe's to endure them. That was unfortunate. Only just the one guy. But this story does have some monsters that are included in the so-called Cthulhu mythos, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, Clark Ashton Smith is an author that Lovecraft loved both his works and personally. And that's why we're going to cover it on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at HPPodcraft.com. My name is Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And our reader is once again the luminous Andrew Lehman. Andrew is back. We love having him. And he's pretty good at handling these uh, insane names and words. So yeah. We're glad to have his expertise on that front. Why did you uh, pick this story? Oh, yeah. It was uh, directed to me by a listener, William Orlock. He's a longtime supporter of the show. I met him at the horse hospital mm -hmm. for the Lovecraft show that we did down there before you. And then he also came up to Leeds for the live show that we did in Leeds. So uh, you've met him. I have, and he's a good man. I just love the phrase, I met him at the horse hospital. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an excellent opening lyric for a pop song. This story was in Weird Tales, October 1934. Just to point out, this is something that I was thinking about. Tolkien never read any of this stuff. This wasn't his bag, the weird fiction stuff. Well, he read some Dunsany. Yes, he did. But when I mean weird fiction, I mean Weird Tales stuff. Like he wasn't yeah. a, a reader of, of Weird Tales because obviously Dunsany predates uh, Weird Tales. Yes, yes, yes. But this story predates The Hobbit by quite a few years. And growing up, I always had in my head that this really elaborate fantasy stuff, the Robert E. Howard Conan stuff was all pre-Hobbit as well. Yeah. In my head, I always had it that Tolkien started all that stuff. It was already there. Yeah. There was just a lot of fantasy groundwork that was laid when he finally jumped in and did that stuff. Well, sure. Absolutely. I mean, even Beowulf, obviously, well, a yeah. huge influence uh, right. on 
the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. This story feels in place kind of with Arabian Nights. Mm-hmm. It's also got that Dunsanian feel to it. It did seem like there was going to be a moral or lesson involved in it, just the way it was being told. Yeah. But there is not. No. And, you know, I was going to say, spoiler alert, there's not. But I'm trying. I'm actually trying to work spoiler alert out of my vocabulary. I've begun to annoy myself. That's good for you. Because, you know, it's not fair if, unless you're actually giving somebody the option not to hear the spoiler. Yeah. Normally when I say that, I'm about to blurt out whatever I'm going to say anyway. Right. So it's kind of a stupid thing yeah. to say. I've never had anybody go spoiler alert and then been able to go, no, no, stop. Don't say anything. Yeah. The story starts off with this guy, Ralabar Vuz. I will say that as a general hater of silly made up name, Ralabar Vuz is a really good one. <laughs> I kind of liked it, yeah. Like, if I did, if I heard that on the radio, I don't think I'd bat an eye. No. Coming up in the next hour, we've got Two Door Cinema Club, Bondax featuring Eric Hassel, and Ralabar Vu's rounding out the set. <laughs> yeah, it fits, man. Oh, I got to tune in. And Ralabar Vu's is doing a live set. Ralabar is a kind of bigwig in Camorium? Commodium. Commodium, I was saying. Every time in my head, I was reading Commodium. <laughs> but yeah, it's Camorium. You know, he's the high magistrate and third cousin of King Hamquat. So tired of King Hamquat's cronyism. <laughs> Ralabar, he's got this hunting party and he's gone off to the mountains. This one specific mountain, which is Mount Vormithadrith. Good. I think I said that right. It's a dormant volcano, so there isn't any crazy volcanic stuff in there, but there's still hot things. There's smoke that comes out of it. It's very exciting. He's got 26 dudes with him braving the wilderness. <laughs> but it's very exciting because it has smoke coming out of it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Smoke coming out of it. Yeah. It's pretty boring, but once a little smoke comes out of it, I'm interested. Yeah, now it's a show. This story is also set in the mythic world of Hyperborea. Mm-hmm. But there's no Conan in there. So I just want to crush that expectation before it forms. Conan's out there doing something, but he doesn't appear in this story. But this guy, he's pretty full of himself. He's a big game hunter with a long list of beasts that he has slain. He needs to do super dangerous quests in order to challenge himself. I completely can understand that. That's Pfeiffer all over. Mm-hmm. Up in this mountain, there are these subhuman people called the Vormish. They're really small, primitive. They don't even use fire, but they are mean and vicious and present a good challenge for a hunt. The way they were described, I wondered, since this is in that shared Hyperborean world if maybe there was some kinship to the worms of the earth. Yes. Those things that we covered before from Robert E. Howard. I guess not. They're just yet another dwarfish subhuman race. Looking them up on Wikipedia it said the Vormis are the primary focus of a posthumous collaboration. A short story by Lynn Carter after Clark Ashton Smith's death. That story is called The Scroll of Morlock. And they are referred to as the Vormi. Vormis would be the plural. In the fictional manuscript The Narcotic Fragments. I thought this was really funny because next to that it says Cytosis needed. <laughs> I mean, this, the narcotic fragments doesn't exist, so how do you get that citation? I guess you would get it from the fiction where it's mentioned, but it, it cracked me up like maybe Wikipedia is just being really smart and they're tricking people into revealing that they have mythos books. You know, like, oh, I can provide that a citation. Wait a minute, that guy's got the narcotic fragments. <laughs> well, in my mind, they're just like the Pakani from uh, Land of the Lost. Ah. You like Chaka. That's what I was thinking. So Ralabar Vuz, he's going to climb this mountain. Him and his posse, they're well stocked and they've got climbing ropes and weapons. Ral has got some badass copper chainmail armor and he's got this shield with a spike through it and a bunch of other cool weapons. And he's just this big hulking guy. Yeah. And I was thinking, let's do this. I want to see him use every single one of those weapons in this story. <laughs> I did. I got excited <laughs> about his shield. <laughs> I know. So he pushes his men to climb the mountain and he will not let them rest because he's so excited to get up there and use these weapons and do some killing. As they 
approached Thanelsini the Vormish earlier in their journey that we heard in the beginning. They heard some Vormish in the distance hooting and hollering. There was some kind of hunt. He thinks that they were successful in that hunt and they're sated, so they're all in their caves just resting. No, well, if they are laid up in their caves, that's bad news for the, the hunting party because go up into those caves is pretty scary. You got to use ropes to lower yourself in and right. they'll throw rocks at you and stuff. As you get closer to the interior, that's where the Vormis women are. They are actually the most fierce yeah. of the Vormis. A lot of hunters have gone into those caves and not returned. So as they're scaling the mountain, this is what the the hunting party is talking about. They talk about the vile feeding habits of the Vormis and the uses to which their captives were put before death. Also, much was said regarding the genesis of the Vormis, who were popularly believed to be the offspring of women and certain atrocious creatures that had come forth in primal days, from a tenebrous cavern world in the bowels of Vormithadris. Wow. So, uh, Bramalbar Vuz, he's a rational man, and he doesn't go in for all this superstitious nonsense, so he kind no. of admonishes them. But there are some local legends about the mountain, that some stuff lives deep in the mountain. For example, the furry frog god Sathagwa. Right. Like, he just lives there as a dude. <laughs> also, there's a whole subterranean world with strange creatures and wizards. Thagua, it says, had come down from Saturn in years immediately following the Earth's creation. So that's a long time he's lived on Earth. Ralabar, you know, like I said, he's a skeptic. He swore with many ribald blasphemies that there were no gods anywhere above or under Vormith the Dareth. <laughs> yeah, he thinks that the, the Vormis are just a bunch of debased aboriginals. There's nothing yeah. supernatural about them. After several hours of heroic climbing, they're high up in the mountain. Above them, there are three caves that were like chimneys of the volcano. And, you know, that's the smoke that I was talking about. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. That's where they wanted to go, but it's a really difficult climb. Rawl is keen of going up there. And the guys are like, oh, we don't really want to do the climbing because, you know, the Vormish in the caves and it's just a yeah. pain in the ass. But he's like, we're going. Yeah, I think some of the Vormish are already trying to knock them off. It says the advisability of bettering their present vantage was now emphasized by a shower of stones and offal from the cavern. They noted certain human relics well gnawed and decayed amid the offal. But that means like organ meats and stuff, right? So they're throwing so, rocks yeah. and bloody human organs at them. Yeah. Really making Ralabar mad. He doesn't like this at all. He's making them all go. He goes up first because he's a, a badass. There's some trees and vegetation up there, but there is a lot of ridges. So it's hard for him to see what else is really going on up there. So also there's some smoke. The smoke that he saw from before wasn't actually coming from a cave like he thought. It's coming from past one of the ridges. And he's yeah. thinking, well, these guys don't make fire. This might be from some civilized folk. Who are these people that are up here before me. This is crazy. He wants to go check it out. He goes over one ridge and then there's another. And he goes over another ridge and there's yet another. So he keeps climbing. The smoke seemed like it was nearby just over that ridge, but then he gets there and it's not. Yeah. You know, he's both puzzled and irritated by the behavior of the smoke. And it says, likewise, the aspect of the rocks around him was disconcertingly and unpleasantly deceitful. Something's going on here. There's some sort of illusion happening. He can hear his followers off in the distance shouting for him, but he doesn't stop. He gets close to the next ridge and then he could hear a Hyperborean guy speaking in some old version of the language to some other strange voices. It says that these voices, they affected his ears in a most unpleasant fashion, suggesting by turns the hum of great insects, the murmurs of fire and water, and the rasping of metal. Pretty cool. He yells or he screams. He's making a charge over the hill to these people. It says, uh, Ralabar Vuz emitted a hearty and somewhat ireful bellow to announce his coming to whatever persons were convened amid the rocks. Which is kind of a strange thing to do. Here I come! I'm coming! My name's Ralabar Vuz! I'm on my way over there! I'm coming there right now! He doesn't know what's 
over there. Like he could peek over no. and there could be like a hundred dudes with weapons for all he knows. Hey. Do a little peek, you know, just look and see what's there before you start yelling. But no, mm. that's not how Ralabar Vu's rolls. <laughs> it reminds me of a friend of mine who, uh, when he was a kid, he hid in one of the clothing racks at like a Target. Yes. He hid on the inside because he wanted to freak out his sister. She's walking by the thing and he parts the, the clothing and he goes, hey. And it was total. It was some stranger. Just looked at him like shocked. <gasps> this kid comes out of the club. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I drink some tea right when you were telling that story? That was the worst idea ever. <laughs> That's what Ralabar did here. He comes over. He goes, hey. <laughs> <laughs> when he, when Ralabar gets over the ridge, he sees a little stone hut with an old guy by a fire that is on an obsidian stone. This fire mm. is on this really polished thing. The fire is changing colors, blue, green, and white. Ralabar also thought that he saw somebody with them, some kind of shadows, but they flitted away right as he came over the ridge. Mm-hmm. Gets over, looks around, doesn't see anything, and he goes, eh. Must be my mind playing some tricks on me. Didn't seem like there were any objects or beings that could have cast these shadows that he saw. Right. So it's definitely illusions of some kind. And the old man who's there, he looks like he's been interrupted doing something. Yeah. The only other being with him there is a lizard-tailed and sooty-feathered bird, which seemed to belong to some night-flying species of Archaeopteryx, which is a bird that's like between dinosaurs and the birds as we know them now. This old guy is ticked at him, and he just starts cursing him. May the order of demons bemire you from heel to crown, cried the venomous ancient. Oh, lumbering, bawling idiot, you have ruined a most promising and important evocation. How you came here, I cannot imagine. I have surrounded this place with twelve circles of illusion, whose effect is multiplied by their myriad intersections, and the chance that any intruder would ever find his way to my abode was mathematically small and insignificant. Ill was the chance which brought you here, for they that you have frightened away will not return until the high stars repeat a certain rare and quickly passing conjunction, and much wisdom is lost to me in the interim. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. He's a wizard. He summoned up some dudes to get some arcane knowledge. Our man, Ralabar, scared him off, and so he's, you know, he's pretty ticked. I don't blame him. The stars were right, and they won't be again for a while, it seems. I was bored out of my skull for most of the story, honestly. It was pretty boring. I felt a little bit more interested by this point, but man, it was kind of a slog going through the first part. Yeah. There is a lot of fake names, weird places, and I know that he's trying to build a world here, but you gotta have some characters doing interesting stuff for me to be invested into your world. Well, this was the most interesting part. I think the reason that it was boring is because it's not even really a story. So it seems that Ralabar has ruined his ritual or whatever it is that he was doing. Ralabar is ticked that this old guy's giving him lip. He's an important person. Ralabar threatens this old guy. Yeah, he tells him, I'm a cousin to King Humquat. This guy, he throws down his credentials. He's the sorcerer Esdegor. Not a sorcerer named Esdegor, but the sorcerer Esdegor. Oh, no. He left the lands of man because they suck. And he says, I care not if you are the magistrate of all swindom or a cousin of the king of dogs. In retribution for the charm you have shattered, the business you have undone by this oafish trespass, I shall put upon you a most dire and calamitous and bitter geesh. Esdegor seems like a fairly curious guy summoning demons to educate him and stuff. I find it hard to believe that he wouldn't be at least a little curious if this guy were actually cousin to the king of dogs. <laughs> 
<laughs> how, do, how do the dogs choose their king? What's the court life like? What lands do you actually rule? All yeah. that stuff would be fascinating. Just the infrastructure management alone would be. All those things, yeah. As the gore, he lays, he lays it on him, the, the skish, as you said before, it's an Irish word, meaning mm -hmm. an obligation or a prohibition magically imposed on a person. So it's not quite a curse, it's its own thing. And this is what it sounds like. For this is the gesh, that you must cast aside all your weapons and go unarmed into the dens of the Vormis, and fighting barehanded against the Vormis and against their females and their young, you must win to that secret cave in the bowels of Vormitadrith beyond the dens, wherein abides from eldermost eons the god Sathogua. You shall know Sathogua by his great girth and his bat-like furriness and the look of a sleepy black toad which he has eternally. He will rise not from his place, even in the ravening of hunger, but will wait in divine slothfulness for the sacrifice. And going close to Lord Sathogua, you must say to him, I am the blood offering sent by the sorcerer Esdegor. Then, if it be his pleasure... Sethagua will avail himself of the offering. And as a kind of guide for Ralabar Vus, Esdegar sends him the feathered dinosaur bird thing. This is his name is Raftantis. Raftantis is Esdegar's familiar. Right. So it's like magically intelligent. Sometimes familiars are said to have the spirits of demons inside of them, but they're extra special animals. Ral is compelled to drop his weapons, so he just drops them. There's nothing he can do about it. He's totally mind-controlled. Which makes the rest of the story so boring to me, and it's a lot like more modern video games where there's a lot of cutscenes in them. Yeah. Like, I'm going along pretty good, I'm fighting guys, and I'm controlling my character, but then you enter a door and suddenly control is taken from you. Yeah. And you have to watch this computer-animated cutscene, and I, I hate it. And you just have to sit there and wait while a bunch of nonsense gets spouted. Inevitably, it's a bad translation, so it doesn't make sense anyway. <laughs> right, It'll be right, a bunch right. of names that I don't care about. That's basically what happens for the rest of the story. It's like a long, crappy cutscene. I keep wanting to take my character back, but no, it's being controlled. When he throws down his weapons, it goes through all the weapons that he threw down. His bladed buckler, his mace, his broadsword, hunting knife, axe, and his needle-tipped anlace. He had a lot of awesome weapons that he will not use. This would be like if Q gave James Bond a car and he was like, it's got a smokescreen, an oil slick, it goes underwater, it turns into a helicopter. If you put it on autopilot, a chimp will pop out of the dashboard, drive you wherever you want to go. <laughs> and then two scenes later, they just blow up the car. Right. right? Yeah. That would be terrible. I want to see him to defeat an enemy with each one of those things you teased. It's not fair. I thought that was a huge failure. I wanted him to run somebody through with that shield, man. Eddie lets him keep his armor because he doesn't want the Vormish to mess him up too much before he gets to Sasagua. The dino bird's going to guide him through caverns in the upper mountain region. They walk away. They go down into this part of the upper mountain. It's pitted with cavern mouths so that they can enter into the different Vormish layers. So he goes into the caves of the Vormish and they attack him. They throw stuff at him. He takes it. Uh, some of the little ones attack him and he kicks them off and they throw some more stuff at him, but they're really careful not to hit the bird thing. They know that it's important and that they don't want to tick off Esdegar. Rao notices this. He tries to get the bird between them and the Vormish. It says that he fought them in obedience to his geesh. So that was my question too. Is he fighting them or is he, is his possessed mind fighting them? I, I don't know exactly how this geesh works because maybe he has free will within a certain 
Well, he does. He does have free will, we find out later, a little bit within the confines of whatever he's been ordered to do. Right. He was ordered to fight them. They, that was part of the Geish. So he's fighting them either way. Right. He probably would want to fight them because they're attacking him, but he's fighting them also because he was bound to, I, I suppose. So he gets past them and in, into deeper caverns. It's totally mm -hmm. dark. So he's following the sound of the wings and the caw slash hissing of Reftantis. Uh, he goes deeper into the mountain and there is some light like from an unseen moon. Unnatural, perhaps he is entering a more ethereal world. It is uh, more ethereal and also more monstery. It says in the shadowy caverns, he beheld great fearsome bulks having a likeness to those behemoths and giant reptiles which burdened the earth in earlier times. Because of the dimness, he could not tell if these were living shapes or forms that the stone had taken. Pretty cool. He's yeah. entering into this primordial world. Raph leads him down to this big cavern, and in it sits a giant furry frogman. So it's Sothagwa. Yeah. And in front of Sothagwa is this body of some unknown creature that has been mostly devoured. Mm -hmm. And against his will, he walks up to Sothagwa and says, Oh, Lord Sothagwa, I am the blood offering sent by the sorcerer Esdegor. So Sothagwa looks him over and says, Oh, that's cool of Esdegar. That guy is an ace. I love him. But I just ate, so I'm not very hungry. I'm going to put a new geese on you to go down deeper into the bottomless hole and find Atlachnacha, the spider god. You should say that you are a gift from me. Yes. So Vuz, he can't resist, and he's off again, and Raph is leading the way. That's when I looked up at the title again. Okay, seven of these? I got an idea of what was going to yep. happen here. Yeah, it's not the same thing. It's just a, a mythos version of pay it forward. Wait, is Haley Joel Osmond in the story? It's possible. Okay. That might have been him just there, Sothagua, you know? He's a chameleon. He follows the bird creature down into this huge chasm where there's this giant spider web in it, and he goes to the edge and he yells that he's arrived. A darksome form enters, big as a crouching man, but with long spider-like members. There's kind of a face on the squat ebon body, low down amid the several jointed legs. All right, creepy giant spider. So the spider god comes down, takes a look at him and says, oh, that's cool, Asithagua, but I'm in the middle of web building here and it's really complicated, delicate work. I don't have time to pick you out of your armor to eat you. So I'm going to put a new geas on you that you go across my web because I need somebody to test it for me. And if you manage to survive and get across, I want you to go down to Hoendor and say you're a gift from me. So he got regifted again. So Raph uh, flies over. Ralabar Vus has to follow across the web. It's sturdy, but the hole seems to have no bottom to it. Mm -hmm. He gets to the other side and he has to go down deeper. Kind of a cool thing here. The stairs, as he's going down, they're guarded by a coiled snake whose mottlings were broad as buckles. So giant snake. Yeah. Doesn't fight the snake, though. Doesn't fight the snake, though. No. Snake just gets out of his way. Boring. This leads him down to a huge chamber with a thousand columns holding up this great ceiling. And there's lots of statues of monsters and a chill of spirit evil in the air. He gets to this guy dressed all in shadows, sitting on a chair that's too high for anyone to actually get up into, unless he flew up there. And he says to the guy, Atlachnacha sent me. The cool thing is that in this room, there are faces that start to come out of the wall, mm -hmm. twisted and awry like those of Mad Devil. It says the faces were thrust forward on necks that lengthened. Behind the necks, mal-shapen shoulders and bodies emerged inch by inch from the stone, craning toward the huntsman. Kind of a neat effect. It's cool. I mean, there's there are cool things in, in this story, but like you said, it's not really much of a story. The figure just sits there as if he's waiting for something, and Ralabar sees all these faces moving in the stonework in the floor, 
And the guy finally speaks in some weird language, but Ralabar understands what he's saying, strangely. And he says, you know, oh, the spider guy, he's a mensch, but I don't know what to do with you. If I feed you to the spirits in my wall, you wouldn't even come close to appeasing them. So instead of riling them all up, why don't you go down to the serpent people and offer yourself to them? They do science stuff. Maybe they can use your parts. I don't know. New geesh. So he goes down again. And at that point, I was like, if we're going to a snake man lab, maybe I am back on board with the story. <laughs> And so that's what happens. Yeah, it is. Following Raph again, he goes down to this place where all these snake guys are doing a bunch <laughs> of lab work, basically. Ralph tries to talk to them, but they all seem too busy to pay any attention to him. Finally, one takes notice of him, and then a bunch of them come over, and they kind of prod him and poke him and take a look at him very scientifically. One of the serpent guys leaves. He comes back with these giant jars, and one of the jars is a Vormish guy in there, dead, and the other is a Hyperborean male, also dead, like, you know, right. preserved. They're specimens. Right. And one of the snake guys at this point, this I thought was really funny, kind of gives a lecture to the other snake men, seemingly comparing the two together. Because he wants to let everybody know, oh, yeah, we've seen this before. This is what a man is. This is what the subhuman right, yeah. original thing is. He's got, a, a, I assume, a lab coat and a laser pointer. And, yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> So Ralabar is just standing there as, as this whole thing's going on. And when the lecture is over, he says in a creepy snake voice, Hondor, what a sweetheart. He is so nice of thinking about us, but we don't need another specimen. We don't even eat natural things anymore. We custom make all of our food. GMOs, man. That's where they started. Snake man down in the labs. <laughs> <laughs> where it all begins. So why don't we give you another hypno suggestion? Because we don't call it a geesh. That magic stuff is silly. We're scientists. And you're going to go down and talk to the archetypes and see if they can find some use for you. Right. So now we're off to the archetypes. This time they go deeper. It's a very warm location and steamy. And there's a bright light all around. Lots of vegetation and growth. But everything in this place seems unreal. So he's able to kind of walk through it almost. I mean, it has a quality to it where it kind of pushes him a bit, but he can push through it. That's more of like a spirit realm at this point. Yeah. Good thing too, because the Trionosaurus Rex shows up, chases him, finally grabs him, tries to eat him. But since this T-Rex is made of this unreal stuff, it just kind of drops out of his mouth and he can't get a hold of it properly right. because it's made of a different substance than he is. And so it just gives up and lets him be. As he continues on, a bunch of other dinosaurs attack him, but eventually leave him alone too. Right, it was all important that that happened. Finally, he makes it to the archetypes. The archetypes are described as two entities of vaguely human outline. They were gigantic with bodies almost globular in form, and they seemed to float rather than walk. Their features, though shadowy, appeared to express aversion and hostility. They don't like what they see in him. And they say, ugh, this is what mankind turned into? Boo, the true model, us. We are so much better than this thing. Get out. Go to the slimy hole of Abhoth, the source of all uncleanliness, and maybe uh, it'll think you're one of its children and it'll eat you. Now, that creature I know from playing the role-playing game. I know, me too. I, I, I love Abhoth. I really dig Abhoth. Abhoth's one of my favorites. Raftontis leads him down further into this dark, slimy place. He sees strange creatures, a toad with one leg and wormy things and strange lizard things, and they're all moving towards him. And as he gets closer to his destination, they seem to get smaller. Right. And finally, he gets to this big pool of gross. Here, it seemed, was the ultimate source of all miscreation and abomination. For the gray mass quabbed and quivered and swelled perpetually, and from it, in manifold fission, were spawned the anatomies that crept away on every side through the grotto. There were things like bodiless legs or arms that flailed in the slime, or heads that rolled, or floundering bellies with fish's fins. 
and all manner of things malformed and monstrous that grew in size as they departed from the neighborhood of Abhoth. And those that swam not swiftly ashore when they fell into the pool from Abhoth were devoured by mouths that gaped in the parent bulk. Yeah. It's such a great, gross, Lovecraftian kind of thing. So much so that this stuff ended up, like you said, in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. Right. And the greater Cthulhu mythos. Little things grow and come out of this pool of monster, uh, but some of them are grabbed and then eaten, as it said, by one of the many mouths. Totally awesome. Then it telepathically speaks to Ralabar. So those archetypes, you know, they really don't know me. You are obviously not my progeny, so there's no way I'm going to eat you. He says, you are quite alien to my experience, and I do not care to endanger my digestion with untried articles of diet. He really lives on a diet of his own grossness. He doesn't eat anything else aside from himself, which is so bizarre. It's so bizarre, but cool. Yeah. He says, I don't want you, but I heard about this place called the Outer World. You should check it out. It's a bleak and dreary and dreadful limbo. You'll love it. Geesh on you. So I thought, okay, great. This is all turned around in his favor. He's been gifted forward so many times that he's finally got the geesh to leave this place and get right. back to the outer world. So that's great. But with all this journeying, Raoul is feeling beat up. This part, I didn't really understand why this is in here at all. So Reftantis leads him to a side cave to sleep. As he sleeps, Reftantis keeps away the Abhoth spawn. When Ralabar wakes up, Raf has got a dead Abhoth spawn for him to eat, and he's really hungry, so he eats it. Great. I mean, we're driving towards a conclusion, so why not just take a nap for no reason? <laughs> Don't get it at all. So after eating, Raf takes him up, not the way that he came down originally, so not through all the other places, kind of a shortcut. And they finally get to the chasm of Atlachnacha. Which is the spidery, webby place. On the way there, some of the spawn of Abhoth ended up following him. And as they followed, the longer they were away from Abhoth, they grew. So they're like the size of tigers now. Yikes. Real gets to the web. There's like this big sloth-like thing walking across the web bridge that he was on before. Mm -hmm. And it's really weird. It's got eyes in its butt and it's got big claws. So he doesn't really want to mess with it. So he just kind of waits. But as he's waiting, those Abhoth spawn are getting closer and closer to him. As the thing finally gets off the web, the Abhoth spawn are on him. Raftantis, with sharp admonitory coings, floated before him above the giant web. And he was impelled to a rash haste by the imminently slavering snouts of the dark abnormality behind. Owing to such precipitancy, he failed to notice that the web had been weakened and some of its strands torn or stretched by the weight of the sloth-like monster. Coming in view of the chasm's opposite verge, he thought only of reaching it and redoubled his pace. But at this point, the web gave way beneath him. He caught wildly at the broken, dangling strands, but could not arrest his fall. With several pieces of Atlachnacha's weaving clutched in his fingers, he was precipitated into that gulf which no one had ever voluntarily tried to plumb. This, unfortunately, was a contingency that had not been provided against by the terms of the Seventh Gesh. That's the end. That's it. So, I guess a punchline to the story. Ha ha. He was almost about to get back out to the outside world, but then he just fell. And he died. Hilarious. I guess. It's kind of a dirty trick. Again, I thought there'd be some lesson or change or some story element in here aside from him getting this uh, succession of curses on him, but there really wasn't. I really like elements of the story. I like the wizard. I like the, the curses. I like all the places he goes. They're all really interesting and cool. Yes. But there's no story. It's all tied together with this lame wandering guy thing and nothing really happens. Who's being mind controlled? Yeah. The second half of the story, so his will isn't even his own. 
So I didn't think it worked as a story, but it did have a lot of great weird elements in it. Yeah. Maybe as much as you can hope for. I've I've read better stuff by Carcash and Smith, of course. Sure. Solid effort of imagineering. Uh, yeah, I'd say so, for sure. Now, uh, what about next week? We're doing kind of a mixed bag, right? This month is potpourri. We're going to just pick random things. Next week, we're going to check out The Unbroken Chain by Irvin Cobb. He yeah. did that one that we really liked called... Fishhead. Fishhead. Yeah, he's an interesting guy, although I heard some of his other stories are a little on the racist. Uh... This one is kind of racist. Yeah. And actually not very good, but... Oh, good. Lovecraft actually liked this story. Uh, mm. I can see some elements to why he liked it. Probably the racist one. <laughs> well, I don't know. I'll give it a read and we'll th- we'll see what we think about that. Good to get back to some good uh, to some monsters, though. I was uh, glad after a month on the moors. Yes, me too. Uh, I was so even glad. though this wasn't an entirely successful story, it was still fun to cover. Yeah, absolutely. I want to thank Andrew Lehman for coming back and reading for us. As always, he did a magnificent job. You're a mensch. <laughs> and with that, I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey, and you've been listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. We are here at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah!